Hello and welcome to episode one of our first series of the Dorset Growth Hub podcast. Today we are joined by Anna Frizzell, who's the Sustainability Manager at the RNLI, a charity we all know and love with the headquarters in the heart of Poole. Anna talks all about sustainability, what it means to RNLI and how they implement it into their strategies and day-to-day tasks. You will also learn how you can make the changes in your own business and become more sustainable. This episode was recorded as part of our Beyond 2020 audio conference and due to the great success we wanted to launch this podcast series publicly and give you all the opportunity to listen and learn and develop your own ideas. So if you're looking for more support for your business, head to our website, dorsetgrowthhub.co.uk, register to get access to more free resources, advice, events, grants and much more. We would really appreciate your support for this podcast. So if you enjoy the episodes, please do leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. Hope you enjoy and over to the show. Hi, Anna. Thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. I wonder, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, hi. Yeah, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, yeah, my name's Anna Frizzell and I'm the Sustainability Manager for the Royal National Lifeboat Institution. I've been with the RNLI about seven and a half years now as Sustainability Manager. And before that, I actually worked as a Environmental Stroke Sustainability Advisor particularly working with small and medium-sized enterprises in Dorset, Hampshire and Isle of Wight. And I have a degree in environmental protection from Bournemouth University. So I'm homegrown and I have worked for the last 20, 25 odd years in the sort of Dorset, Hampshire and Isle of Wight area. Could you just, a lot of people don't really understand what sustainability means. So could you give us a bit of a a definition of what what you see sustainability as in in the business sense? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? You often see, you know, meeting the needs of today without compromising the needs of tomorrow or looking at people, planet and profit, those kind of things. But I think in reality, it's about ensuring organisations are robust and resilient and adaptive to the current sort of social, economic and environmental issues or opportunities that people are facing right now, but also thinking more sort of medium and long term. So again, I think a lot of the times we're quite reactive to things that are in front of us. And you know, with COVID-19, that's totally understandable. But it's also taking a, a more of a mid to long term view about, you know, what is it in society or in terms of the environment or economically that we depend on? You know, where do we have a positive impact or could we and where do or could we have a negative impact? And then thinking about, okay, what is it we can actually do to change any of those things? So some things we can change, some things we can't. Um, And it's understanding, I think, those areas that are relevant to what an organization does and where they can do something positive to make an active change to help improve their economic, social or environmental performance. Right. So just I wonder how sustainability works within RNLI because it's a, a big company within um, within the Dorset economy. So I wonder how your job in sustainability fits along with RNLI's company view on sustainability. 
Yeah, um, first is we're a charity as opposed to a company. So slightly different rules, but obviously morally the, the same kind of obligations. And I think in, in essence, it's, you know, in 2024, it's our 200 year anniversary. And for us as an organization, sort of corporately, for want of a better word, it's making sure that we're robust and resilient and adaptive enough to continue to prevent drowning and saving lives at sea for another 200 years. So it's thinking about what does that mean in the current environment or current climate. Uh, but also, if you like, taking a, a responsibility and an accountability for the decisions that we're making now and how it affects the future. So we have a five-year plan um, and it's called Our Watch. And basically, it's, it's everyone in the RNI family kind of accepting that it's our accountability and responsibility for the impacts that we have now, but also for the kind of foundations that we're laying for the future. So it's, as I mentioned earlier, really about understanding where do we have things that we rely on? So 95% of the RNLI is not actually based in pool. It's actually based in communities around the UK and Republic of Ireland. So it's understanding the opportunities and issues that are faced by people in those communities, um, either individually or um, in, in terms of the wider society, and thinking about what kind of impact that has on our strategies and our own plans as an organisation to, to deliver the drowning prevention and the life-saving work that we do. So particularly, you know, working in a kind of inclusive and, and partnership approach, you know, we can't do everything we do on our own. We need to work with communities and partners and suppliers. And so we also need to understand their dependencies and issues as well. So it's thinking more broadly than just half a dozen people sat in a room working out a strategy. It's actually thinking about our place in the world, our impact on it, and whether that's you know positive or negative, how we can increase those positive impacts, particularly around the value that we provide to society. I mean, the RNLI is completely funded by public donations. You know, our our normal operating costs are around about 180 million a year, as you can see from our annual report and accounts. So we have to be relevant to society and, and to people if we're going to continue uh, to be able to fund the work that we do. But certainly in future, it's not enough just to prevent drowning and to save lives. Obviously, that's our core purpose and that's what we will always do. But it's the way in which we go about doing that that I think is fundamental in terms of making the RNLI more sustainable in the future. So how we actually go about delivering those services, the choices we make, the activities that we do, that's really important. In the current situation, a lot of businesses are focusing on survival and possibly sustainability is taking a back seat. Is that something that you think they ought not to be doing and still considering sustainability, even though they're struggling to survive? Is there a place for both topics in their business planning, do you think? I certainly do. And I think it's almost essential because if you're not looking at recovery and return plans from a, a, a sustainability point of view, you're constantly going to be firefighting, if you like. You're going to be moving from one short-term plan to another to another. Now, I totally understand that people are 
you know, having to think about turnover, they're having to think about whether they can carry on employing people. But it's also important to look at, if you like, the the way in which, for example, if people are coming back into work, how they are going to amend their behaviours or the infrastructure to enable them to continue to work. I mean, working from home, it, again, is a classic example. You know, lots of people have been saying, oh, that's great because it, you know, it, it reduces the analyzed carbon footprint. Well, no, it doesn't actually because those people, how they get to and from work is not part of our footprint, it's part of their own. So whilst, yes, it has reduced greenhouse gas and carbon emissions, it's the, the, the people's themselves. So adapting the way that organizations work and understanding, for example, where their true costs are. So energy and waste costs are often hidden costs in a business. And they're not actually thought about in terms of the product or the service that they actually deliver. So getting to grips with how much it actually costs in terms of energy or fuel or waste production or water can help them to really get to grips with costs and, 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 and look at opportunities for the future to reduce those costs and or become more efficient. You know, if you go back to doing exactly what you did before, then you're only going to get what you got before. You're not going to get anything different. So you either need to think about other things, energy, waste, water, uh, people's well-being, how people work, all of those kind of issues in terms of sustainability. It's not just environmental. It's also uh, social. Um, if you don't think about those things, they're going to come back to bite you later on. So whilst we're in a massive period of change, I think now is a good time to just begin to explore those issues and see if they can actually help develop a more robust and resilient return or a, a new way of doing your business um, than just trying to get back to doing what you did before. Sorry, I'm very interested. Picking up on your topic of working at home or going back into the office, which is a very relevant thing at the moment, mm. I think people have looked at it in terms of, oh, it must be better for the environment because people are staying at home and they're not driving to meetings and therefore their carbon footprint is improving. I'm interested that you're saying that that's not improving your carbon footprint, it's the personal one. Have you got a yeah. view on this going back to work or staying in the office as an environmental issue? It's interesting. I mean, I think it has to be thought of, first of all, from a from an organisational and a people point of view. Um, so some people love working from home. I do. Uh, some people absolutely hate it. So in terms of their well-being, I think it's really important to understand each individual's view and feelings around that. And also from an organisational point of view. Yes, you can move from having, I don't know, 100 people in an office where you're heating and lighting and cooling one building to 100 people in their homes, heating, lighting and cooling 100 different buildings uh, or homes. And so I think we just have to be a little bit careful when people are making environmental claims. Of course, people not commuting, those greenhouse gases are not going up into the atmosphere as a result of their travel. So that is good globally, if you like. And, and, and I'm not disputing that fact at all, but I think organisations just to think a little bit more carefully, actually our energy use potentially could go up. So all those people working from home now, particularly we're coming into the winter, I think simple things like 
do you need to have the heating on for the whole house when you're working in one room? Okay, as an employer, what could you do to advise and help and give top tips to people who uh, perhaps just need to heat or cool or light one room in a house um, rather than have the heating on and, and, and be heating everything up? So I think it's not quite as straightforward as you're going from A to B. You need to think about the slightly wider impacts and be careful about the claims you're making. But I think there are real opportunities to, to help people, uh, particularly working from home, become much more efficient um, in the way that they're actually doing that. And so in terms of people again, then, do you find that the working from home and not being in a group or a team affects the sustainability of your workforce or how you get things done? Do you find that you're missing out on something by being on, I hear people saying they're zoomed out. Do you find that you're losing some connection or people are less happy? How is that working for you at RNLI? Um, I think it's a mixture and the our people department, I guess other people call it HR, we call it the people department, are very sensitive to different needs of different people. So I don't think it's one size fits all. Before I joined the RNLI, I was home-based. I worked with small to medium-sized organisations on environment and sustainability. So I was home-based. So for me, actually going back into an office was was weird. Um, that was the big change. So working back at home, I love it because I don't have a commute. I'm much more effective, much more efficient, can get a lot more work done. I personally, emotionally and mentally, my well-being, I find it fine because I was used to it. But I think it depends on the individuals and, and organisations need to have really good conversations with each person about what is it that the business expects them to deliver. How is the business going to work with them to ensure that they can be productive, but also maintain their own sort of mental and physical well-being? Years ago, I, I went through a, a, a situation where I couldn't switch off and because it was at home, I could always access it and I almost burnt myself out and I learned that lesson and through working with some others and putting in place a structure at home, I got back to a, a really good work-life balance and I think you know, just making people work from home and not providing that guidance and that support infrastructure it, is quite dangerous, I think, for, for people's well-being. I think it's important that those conversations are had with individuals and those that really don't like um, or struggle to work from home should perhaps be given alternatives or be able to, if they can't go into an office, is there a, a, a shared workspace where they can at least interact with other human beings? I know we have quite a few around Dorset where people can, you know, go in and, and, and share workspace and have a cup of coffee and, and actually meet people, social distancing and COVID restrictions permitting. But I also think it's um, important that employers don't go overboard in terms of scrutiny. I was listening to something on Radio 4 earlier on today where they were saying, uh, you know, employers putting in webcams and measuring keystrokes and all this kind of stuff. If you don't trust your people, then there's a serious problem with your organisation. You know, you don't stand over them necessarily all day, every day at work. If you employ somebody, you should be able to motivate them to be as productive as they can be. And again, I think it's important to have those conversations around what is it, you know, is it hours spent in front of a computer or is it some kind of other measure of productivity at the end of the day, achieving certain objectives that actually is, is what an organisation is after. 
Yeah, certainly. I think managing people remotely, it's a job for managers and it's harder for managers, but I think it's something they've got to, they can't blame the people. They've got to get, get better at it. But I want to swivel a bit to lots of people think of RNLI and the, and the lifeboats, but you're a manufacturer there as well. I wonder how sustainability fits in with, with RNLI and are you looking to shorten your supply chains with the changes coming in Europe? Is that some sustainability issues that you look at? I mean, certainly in terms of being a manufacturer, it kind of, again, as I said before, it comes back to us thinking about what can we manage, what can we control and what can we only influence. So in terms of we design, manufacture and maintain our, all our own boats, um, our new Shannon class lifeboat costs about £2 million to build, takes about six weeks. It has a 25-year lifespan. We'll be coming back in for a major refit and go out for another 25 years. Uh, so it's a very long-lived asset. So from a sustainability point of view, that's good. However, when they come back in in 25 years, it's pretty unlikely it's going to be a fossil fuel engine that goes back in there. Right now, today, what kind of engine is going to be going in there? We haven't any idea. We don't know. So we would be discussing, well, we are discussing and working with e engine manufacturers that we buy the engines from, but that may also dictate changes to the design of the lifeboat. But we also need to be thinking about, okay, the boats that the Shannons are replacing, you know, they're, I don't know, anywhere between 25, 28 tonne each. They're made mainly of composite material, and there is a real issue worldwide in recycling of end-of-life composites from the marine industry. So again, you know, we've been looking at lifeboat decommissioning. Yes, we sell lifeboats that are in good condition for second life purposes. But going forward, we know there's a bad wave, um, excuse the pun, of end-of-life material. So we're trying to have conversations now around innovative things that we could perhaps do you know can we make other products about out of them could we make cladding for lifeboat stations part of the problem for for composites is it's an incredibly hard wearing material that's why we build hulls of ships out of it which consequently means it's incredibly difficult to break down and and recycle so again it's having those conversations around those longer term things those issues that we can see coming but it's also about when we do a refurbishment, how much waste are we going to produce from all the stuff that's coming out of a boat and planning now? What is it that we could do to recover value? You know, as I said, we, we are uh, no government funding. We're totally paid for by supporters' money. Uh, we have a, a moral, if not legal, duty to make sure that we spend our donors' money wisely. And if we can recover something back from what is classed as a waste, so move from a sort of linear economy approach to a much more circular economy approach, we can recover something back from that, create something new that either we buy uh, and use or that somebody else would uh, buy and use. You know, that's the way forward. So we haven't got that all sorted by any stretch of the imagination, but it's certainly in our thinking. It's certainly in our sort of longer planning. As far as supply chain goes, I wonder how much of your material for boat building comes from, from the Dorset economy or does it come from, from all over the place? I can't give you any percentages. Um, I would say quite a lot of it will be wider than Dorset. So are the engines, for example, that we buy, we buy from you know, people like Caterpillar or Scandia or those kind of people, so they'll be manufactured across Europe. And again, with the composite materials, unlikely to be primarily made here in the UK, although we do try to seek UK suppliers. 
but it is an interesting question twofold one is obviously the brexit issue and i'm no expert in that and I, and, and and i'm not going to pretend to be we have teams of people who are looking at that but certainly from a climate change point of view so making we 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 don't only need to look at ourselves from climate change impacts both mitigating our impacts into the environment but also how we adapt to the impacts of climate change we need to understand what our key suppliers are doing um, to make sure that they can continue to supply us And so obviously, if you're shipping something halfway around the world, the impacts of climate change and, and, you know, hotter, wetter winters or warmer, wetter winters, flooding, hotter, drier summers, drought, um, sea level rise, coastal erosion, all of those kind of things, we need to understand what impact that's going to have on our suppliers um, and what they are doing to adapt to ensure our security of supply of our key things, not just our own plans as well. So just just sort of wondering how the COVID situation has affected your priorities as a, as a team of, as a sustainability team of the priority changes happened or are you just uh, getting through it? It's been really interesting, actually, because I have to be honest, uh, myself and my colleague, um, who is the energy manager, so there's two of us in the team dedicated towards sustainability and, and environment and were furloughed and to begin with we're a bit worried it had just completely fallen off the agenda um, but when we actually came back we found that it hadn't and in fact there were a lot more questions so questions like uh, how environmentally friendly is our PPE what do we do with it as a waste are there opportunities for dealing with it better can it be recycled how do we make sure it doesn't end up in the environment all of these kind of questions were were there And to be honest, because our approach has been not to have, if you like, a separate sustainability strategy and separate sustainability plans, particularly around the environment, but to embed them into making our strategies and our plans sustainable, work has actually carried on uh, whilst, whilst we haven't been there. I must admit, it's now we are back, it's back with a vengeance. And the RNLI is really trying to embed sustainability thinking in all we do. So all of our return plans, our future business plans, is thinking about what impacts does this have on society and individuals? What are the environmental dependencies and impacts likely to be? Because they want to, if you like, embed it so they make those choices and those decisions and that thinking once or now, um, rather than make decisions and make plans and then have to go back and revisit them uh, to put that sustainability lens on. So whilst I thought it would drop off the agenda, in fact, it hasn't, it's remained. And if anything, it's it's gone up the agenda because I think a lot of people during lockdown really reconnected with or revalued the natural environment um, in terms of its Im- impact on its well-being, their well-being, um, you know, being able to get out and exercise, clean air, and all the images we saw around the world of water, particularly the marine environment becoming clean and wildlife coming into our urban environment. So I'm really happy to say it didn't fall off the end of a cliff. Uh, it's actually got stronger. So your advice then to everyone is that it, even in the situation of recovery and trying to survive, that sustainability is an issue they still need to keep their eye on and that does have an effect on their future survival going forward into 2021. 
I think so, because it's about, you know, if, if we almost take the word sustainability out and replace them with the words robust, resilient and adaptive, if businesses are thinking about how can I make my return plans and my future business models robust, resilient and adaptive to change, I think most people would think that was probably a good idea. I think part of the problem is the word sustainability because, you know, people are sort of associated with green and fluffy and marches and all this kind of stuff. But actually, it is about making sure that your business plan and your model of operating your business model is right for now, but is also adaptive to the stuff that's coming over the horizon in the future. Brilliant. Thank you very much indeed, Anna. It was fantastic. Thanks again. You're welcome. We hope you enjoyed Anna's episode. Make sure you listen in to our other guests discussing sustainability, including John Featherby, Nikki Webb and Sukanya Ayatakshi. Or you can head straight to episode five, where all four guests joined us on a panel and answered your questions. If you want to talk more about your business and how we can help you, head to dorsetgrowthhub.co.uk and drop us a message. Look forward to hearing from you and enjoy the rest of the episodes.